Please be aware the stories, theories, reenactments, and language in this podcast are, well, of an adult nature, and they can be disturbing, frightening, and even in some cases, offensive. Therefore, listener discretion is advised. Hey, there's very, very adult content ahead, and you have been warned, so I don't want to hear any complaints. Welcome, heathens. Welcome to the world of the weird and unexplained. That's right, I am your host, Nicole Delacroix, and together we will be investigating stories about the weird, wonderful, unexplained, eerie, scary, and downright unbelievable. There will be tales of ghosts, murder, supernatural beings, and unexplained mysteries. So, sit back, grab your favorite drink, Relax and prepare to be transported to today's Dark Enigma. And on today's Dark Enigma, we're jumping into a bit of a new story that, well, maybe you might know and maybe you don't. But I had a very simple request from a dear listener to hear a story about fairies. And no, not those kind of fairies, but nice try. And, well, you know I'm nothing if not accommodating, so... Today's story is going to be about fairies. But before we get into all that, as always, we will be playing our drinking game. But again, the drinking game is only for those of you that are at home and have nowhere else to go tonight. Since today's episode is, well, sort of vague and doesn't really have much meaning to it, I'm going to go ahead and let you guys pick your poison this time. Alright, now for the game part. Every time I say fairy, that's going to be a single shot. And every time I say Cornwall, that's going to be a double shot. All right, now that we have the business end out of the way, we can jump headfirst into today's dark enigma. And we are talking the story of the fairy abduction of Anne Jeffries. So let's hit it, my heathens. Let's go. So, outside the dramatic inventions of Shakespeare, Drayton, Herrick, you know those, most accounts of human interaction with the fairies or the fey folk from the early modern period are derived from the desperate records of witch trials. Which, by the way, those of you who have sent in requests about the witchy stuff, we're going to get to it. I'm just waiting till it gets closer to October. October's going to be a whole month of nothing but witches. I promise. Alright, these records often chronicle the accused witch's testimony, usually under torture, of consorting with fairy familiars for the purposes of divination, healing, and sometimes flying to sabbats. Historians such as Carlo Grinsberg and Emma Wilby have teased out the detail from the trial records to create a convincing argument that they encode genuine evidence of shamanic practices among the witches who were frequently able to interact with the fairies in a disassociated altered state of consciousness. Interesting, right? I thought it was. The records do supply us with the largest body of documentary evidence for the ontology of the fairies between the 16th and 18th centuries. But there is one very unusual case that comes down to us from various sources, and yet contains many of the motifs usually contained within the witch trials. And 
If you haven't guessed, I am talking about the story of Anne Jeffries from St. Teeth, which is close to the north coast of Cornwall. That's right, double shot buddies. Anne Jeffries was 19 years old when she went into service in 1645 with the wealthy Pitt family on their country estate near St. Teeth. A description of what happened to her is contained in a letter that's dated 1696 from Moses Pitt to the Right Reverend Dr. Edward Fowler, Bishop of Gloucester. Moses was a young boy when Anne went into service with his family, and the letter seems to be in part a memoir, but also a request for some Christian explanatory guidance from the bishop. Yeah, say that ten times fast. I'm already a little drunk, can you tell? Although, there was no record of any reply anyways. The letter found its way into the hands of the 19th century folklorist and scientist Robert Hunt, who was able to supplement the details with his own collection of local oral testimony, where the story had evidently been doing the rounds for over 150 years. I'm going to say a story that sticks around that long might actually have a little water to it. Anyways, Hunt's literary rendering of the story appeared in his 1865 publication, Popular Romances of the West of England, along with extracts from Moses Pitt's letter. Hunt's folkloric version is worth quoting in full, although, as we're going to see, it's not the end of the strangeness that surrounds Dear Anne. So we're going to start with Hunt's folkloric version, and at this time I'm just basically going to be reading what he wrote, so deal with it. I'm going to try to be funny all the way through it, so, you know, I'm drunk, so Lord only knows what I'm going to say. Anne Jeffries was the daughter of a poor laboring man who lived in the parish of St. Teeth. She was born in 1626 and is supposed to have died in 1698. When she was 19 years old, Anne, who was remarkably sharp and clever of a girl, went to live as a servant in the family of Mr. Moses Pitt. Anne was an unusually bold girl and would do things which even boys feared to attempt. Of course, in those days, everyone believed in fairies, and everybody feared those little airy beings. I personally have had two versions of them. The super sweet that you see in all the comic books and all the TV shows and everything, and then there's the scary ones. But, let's talk about them. They were constantly the talk of the people, and this set Anne longing anxiously to have an interview with some of the fairy. So Anne was often abroad after sundown, turning up the fern leaves and looking into the bells of the foxglove to find a fairy, all the time singing a tune. Fairy fair and fairy bright, come and be my chosen sprite. She never allowed a moonlight, moonlit night to pass without going down into the valley and walking against the stream, singing once again. Moon shines bright, waters run clear, I am here, but where's my fairy dear? The fairies were a long time trying this poor girl, for as they told her afterwards, they never lost sight of her, but there they would be, looking on when she was seeking them, and they would run from frond to frond of the ferns when she was turning them up in her anxious search. One day, though, Anne, having finished her morning work, was sitting in the arbor in her master's garden, 
when she fancied that she heard someone moving aside the branches, as though endeavoring to look in on her. And she thought it must be her sweetheart, so she resolved to take no notice, because, you know, even then we're flirts. Anne went on steadily with her work. No sound was heard but the regular beat of the knitting needles, one upon the other. Presently, she heard a suppressed laugh, and then again a rustle amidst the branches. The back of the arbor was towards the lane, and to enter the garden it was necessary to walk down the lane to the gate, which was, however, not many yards off. Click, click, click went the needles. Click, click, click. At last Anne began to feel vexed that the intruder did not show himself, and she pettishly said, half aloud, "'You may stay there till the cooney grows on the gate, ere I'll come to ye.'" And cooney, by the way, is moss or mildew, just in case you didn't know. Because I didn't, I had to look it up, and I was like, why didn't you just say moss? Whatever. There was immediately a peculiar, ringing, and very musical laugh. Anne knew this was not her lover's laugh, as she felt afraid. But it was bright day, and she assured herself that no one would do her any mischief, as she knew herself to be a general favorite in the parish. Presently, Anne felt assured that the garden gate had been carefully opened and again closed, so she waited anxiously for the results. In a few moments, she perceived at the entrance of the arbor six little men, all clothed very handsomely in green. They were beautiful little figures and had very charming faces with such bright eyes. The grandest of these little visitors, who wore a red feather in his cap, advanced in front of the others and, making a most polite bow to Anne, addressed her familiarly in the kindest of words. This gentleman looked so sweetly on Anne that she was charmed beyond measure, and she put down her hand as if shaking hands with her little friend, when he jumped into her palm and she lifted him into her lap. He then without any more, clambered upon her bosom and neck and began kissing her. I had a boyfriend like that once. Okay, maybe not. <laughs> okay. Anne never felt so charmed in all her life, as while this one little gentleman was playing with her, but presently he called his companions, and they all clambered up by her dress as best they could and kissed her neck, her lips, and her eyes. I'm just going to say this is starting to sound like an orgy, but that's just me. Okay. One of them ran his fingers over her eyes, and she felt as if they had been pricked with a pin. Suddenly, Anne was blind, and she felt herself whirled through the air at a great rate. By and by, one of her little companions said something which sounded like, Tear away! And lo! Anne had her sight at once restored. She was in one of the most beautiful places she had ever seen, temples and palaces of gold and silver, trees laden with fruits and flowers, lakes full of gold and silver fish, and the air full of birds with the sweetest of songs and the more brilliant of colors. Hundreds of ladies and gentlemen were walking about. Hundreds more were idling in the most luxurious bowers, the fragrance of the flowers oppressing them with the sense of delicious repose. Hundreds were also dancing, engaged in sports of various kinds. Anne was, however, surprised to find that these happy people were no longer the small people she had previously seen. 
There was now no more than the difference usually seen in a crowd between their height and her own. Anne found herself arrayed in the most highly decorated clothes. So grand indeed did she appear that she doubted her own identity. Anne was constantly attended by her six friends, but the finest gentleman who was the first to address her continued to be her favorite, at which the others appeared to be very jealous. Eventually Anne and her favorite contrived to separate themselves, and they retired into some most lovely gardens, where they were hidden by the luxuriance of the flowers. Lovingly did they pass the time, and Anne desired that this should continue forever. However, when they were at the very happiest, there was heard a great noise, and presently the five other fairies at the head of the great crowd came after them in a violent rage. Her lover drew his sword to defend her, but this was soon beaten down and he lay wounded at her feet. Then the fairy that had blinded her again placed his hands upon her eyes, and all was dark again. She heard strange noises and felt herself whirled about and about, as if there were a thousand flies buzzing about her. At length her eyes were opened, and Anne found herself on the ground in the arbor, where she had been sitting in the morning, and many anxious faces were all around her, all conceiving that she was recovering from a convulsion fit. According to Moses Pitt, Anne only related her experience at a later date, after she seems to have acquired the most miraculous healing abilities. This was just after her mistress slipped and broke her leg. Anne convinced her to allow her to lay her hands on the leg out over the course of the next few days, thereby healing the fracture without the need to call a surgeon. Under further interrogation, Anne told her that she had been told about the accident by the fairies, and that she would be able to hear her mistress's leg through some type of osmotic fairy power. You know, basically something you can't see and eh, it's just there, whatever. Once this was admitted, Anne spilled the beans about what had happened to her when she had fallen into convulsions in the arbor. She also confessed that the fairies were now frequently visible to her, but to no one else, and that it was through them and their otherworldly influence that she found herself with clairvoyant attributes and the ability to go long periods without eating any food, claiming that she did not need to as the fairies supplied her with a special bread that sustained her. Pitt also chronicles her apparent ability to make herself invisible something which she explained as another gift of the fairies to be used sparingly and without malice. Oh, to be invisible, I know exactly whose house I'd break into. Just kidding. Word of Anne's healing and clairvoyant faculties soon spread throughout the county and beyond, bringing a steady stream of visitors to partake of her services, for which she never charged anyone. Unfortunately, this brought her to the attention of the notorious Cornish magistrate, Jan Tregogel. Yeah, say that ten times fast. <laughs> Dude, I had to practice it three times. <laughs> Who issued a warrant for her arrest on the basis that she was consorting with the devil. And she was duly imprisoned at the residence of the mayor of Bodmin. Now, she avoided being tried as a witch, which is pretty miraculous in itself. 
although there were no more than 15 witch trials in Cornwall through the main period of the witch craze in 17th and 18th centuries. That's a very small number compared to some other counties such as Essex and Somerset, which only there was a mass trial of 25 alleged witches at the courts of Aziz in Launceston, six of whom were found guilty and hanged. But Anne, well, she was lucky to escape such a fate. She was, however, deprived of food whilst imprisoned, but her fairy allies once again came to her aid and kept her fed with their thaumaturgic bread. Yeah, that's like magical bread. I'm just going to call it magic bread, if that's cool. Yeah, I don't care if it's cool or not, it's just magic bread. Interestingly, a 1647 document containing correspondence from the mayor, now held in the Clarendon Manuscripts Archives, confirms Anne's presence in the jail and that she was, in fact, deprived of food for several months without any apparent detriment to her health. And that's just one more piece of tantalizing evidence to suggest the strangeness surrounding Anne's life. Anne was released without trial and went to live with a widowed aunt of Moses Pitt near Padstow, later marrying a laborer by the name of William Warren. She continued to cure people throughout her life by the laying on of hands and became a very strict Episcopalian. But whether she continued to consort with the fairies, well, that's unknown. In 1693, in the hope of gleaning some more details about her supernatural visitors, Moses Pitt, who was then living in London, sent a friend, Humphrey Martin, to interview her. But in a letter from Martin to Pitt, he made it clear that she was not willing to divulge any details of her experience or of her later life. And I quote from that letter. That's right, I got a copy of it. As for Anne Jeffreys, I have been with her the greater part of one day and did read to her all that you wrote to me. But she would not own anything of it, as concerning the fairies, neither of any of the cures that she did. I asked her the reason why she would not do it. She replied that if she should discover it to you, that you would make books and ballads of it. And she said that she would not have her name spread about the country in books and ballads of such things, if she might have five hundred pounds for it. Yep, it always comes down to money, babes. The memory of her time incarcerated at the mayor of Bodmin's pleasure and the fear of repeating that experience would almost certainly have been another reason for her to hold her tongue. Anne Jeffries died in 1698. And Anne's experience of abduction by the fairies bears many similarities with the recorded confessions of witches on trial in the 17th century. There's much evidence to suggest that these witches were recalling metaphysical rather than physical events and that they were achieving flight, contact with fairy familiars and journeying into fairyland and or to Sabbaths via an, via an altered state of consciousness that was brought about by a variety of methods. And this correlates with the shamanic practice that several authors have suggested, which was what underlay the witch experience. And I quote, Many of the core attributes of shamanism described by Mercia a lady and by many anthropologists since find resonance in the practices of pre-modern witch, witchcraft through a variety of methods, including ingestive, ingestion of psychotropic plants and mushrooms, been there, done that, fasting, been there, done that, dance, okay, been there, done that, illness and sensory deprivation. 
the shaman falls into an ecstatic trance. His or her body is left in a cataleptic state, whilst their consciousness is removed elsewhere, always with the aid of a totem animal. The shaman's consciousness either becomes the animal or is guided by an animal during their out-of-body experience, which enables them to travel to a variety of metaphysical realms and bring back the required or sought-after information. During these ecstasies, as they're called, the shaman is able to encounter other shamans, both friendly and hostile, who similarly disassociate their consciousness from their physical selves. Now, if this is starting to sound a little bit familiar, most of you in the United States are probably thinking that sounds an awful lot like our American Indian shamans. And it does. And Central Mexico, our Mayan and Aztec ancestors, and a lot of countries around the world world have these same practices, and some of them even practice to this day. These are all the basic components of the witches' ecstasies described through the medium of their Christian persecutors. Whether these visionary episodes were remnants of a pre-Christian Eurasian shamanism, or whether they were diffused from marginal societies in parts of Scandinavia, Eastern Europe, and even Siberia where shamanism still survived in various forms throughout that period remains equivocal. But the ontological correlations suggest that there was a medieval and early modern heretical witch cult in many parts of Europe, existing beneath the prevailing Christian orthodoxy, which utilized aspects of shamanism as its modus operandi. And, well, Anne's newfound healing abilities after visiting Fairyland certainly do have a shamanic undertone to them. But she was never accused of being a witch, and her experiences do not suggest that she was ever involved with any other practice of witchcraft. Her original adventure was unexpected, and while many of the story's motifs find commonality with the Confession of Tried Witches, Anne's narrative retains a unique, personal quality that kind of sets it apart from the old trial records. However, the details of the story, including flight, immersion in a fairy realm, and the ability to continue communion with supernatural beings, do suggest that Anne was accessing a metaphysical reality through an altered state of consciousness. The clues built into the surviving documents suggest that might have been caused by a neurological condition. Interesting, interesting, right? It is clear from both Hunt's version of the story and Moses Pitt's letter that she was prone to distemper and convulsion or fits. And Pitt reports her as saying that, you know that this is my sickness and fits come very suddenly upon me. These these seizures sound a lot like epilepsy. In fact, more specifically, temporal lobe epilepsy. This condition has been linked to a variety of transcendent and mystical experiences, with many modern testimonies of those with the condition matching several of the components of Anne's description of her abduction. Clifford Pickover has summarized some of these experiences where people with frequent bursts of electrical activity in their temporal lobes report sensations of flying, floating, leaving the body, as well as other mystical experiences. The onset of an epileptic epileptic episode often includes a tingling or prickling of the eyes prior to loss of vision just as reported by Anne after the fairies crawl onto her in the arbor 
one of the most detailed explorations of this condition and how it relates to transcendent experiences is Eve Laplatte's 1993 book, Seized. She uses historic and contemporary examples to demonstrate that temporal lobe epilepsy can provide access to an altered state of consciousness where the human mind participates in a reality several steps removed from the consensus material world. Seriously, if you haven't read the book and you're interested in these things, it is one of the best reads that you'll ever hear about this, this type of issue. This often includes a full immersion in alternative landscapes and contact with non-human intelligence. Interestingly, LaPlante also links the condition to personality change and creative energy, again providing parallels with Anne's own story. And she states, and I'm just taking it from the book, Hidden or diagnosed, admitted or unknown, the mental states that occur in temporal lobe epileptic seizures are more than simply neurological symptoms. People with temporal lobe epilepsy, whether or not they know the, the physiological cause of their seizures, often incorporate their symptoms into poems, stories, and myths. And the disorder does more than provide the stuff of religious experience and creative work. Temporal lobe epilepsy is associated with personality change even when seizures are not occurring. It amplifies the very traits that draw people to religion, healing, and art. End quote. She also suggests that the condition might be responsible for the reliably bizarre phenomenon of alien abduction. Interesting again. She notes that one of the most famous alien abductees, Whitley Stryber, submitted to a magnetic res resonance imaging scan, or an MRI, that revealed occasional punctuate foci of high signal intensity in his left temporal parietal region, which is suggestive of scarring, which could lead to temporal lobe epilepsy. Interesting. We find them in the same place as we do alien abductions interesting. So shamans, fairies, aliens, and DMT researchers such as Jacques Vallée and Graham Hancock make convincing arguments for the tight relation between fairy abductions in folklore and alien abductions in the 20th and 21st centuries. The experiences are culturally coded to time and place, but the correlations and similarities are intriguing and interesting and might suggest a common source for the phenomena. And UFO researchers Chris Aubeck and Jenny Randalls have even insinuated that Anne Jeffrey's story has all the attributes of a modern-day alien abduction scenario. Obviously, it cannot be definitively proven that Anne Jeffrey suffered from temporal lobe epilepsy. And the relationship between folklore fairy abductions and modern alien abductions, well, it's way too tentative. But Anne's unusually well-documented case does allow us to speculate that she may have experienced a life-changing supernatural contact while in some form of altered consciousness. So the question remains, who were the fairies and where was the fairyland in Anne's story? If she was genuinely describing her flight to an alternate reality and the retention of contact with metaphysical beings, was it real? The answer may reside with Anne's belief in the fairies. The story and Moses Pitt's correspondence make it clear that she did believe in the objective reality of supernatural fairy entities even before she supposedly met them. 
It simply took the circumstances of an altered state of consciousness, consciousness, perhaps in the form of an epileptic seizure, for her to realize her own reality. As usual with both folkloric fairy encounters and modern experiences, we need to allow for the possibility that consciousness is not constrained to what is usually considered consensus physical reality. Just as for shamans or witches, the potential for con consciousness to access non-physical realities by bypassing the usual neurological confinements may explain interaction with non-human intelligence and the matrix in which they usually live, as opposed to the matrix we're in, right? The ex-NASA scientist and out-of-body phenomenon adherent Tom Campbell has coined the, the phrase entering a different data stream to explain the ontological reality of what the mind experiences when it is freed from its incarceration within the brain. It is simply a different reality with different roles. And if, like Anne Jeffries, you believe in fairies, however culturally coded, that is what your consciousness will bring to the table if you allow it to do so. And with that, my darlings, we have come to the end of our episode. And I do thank you for joining me today. I hope that you take some time to reach out to me and share your thoughts on what you think. You can always reach the show at darkenigmapodcast at gmail.com. And if you have some suggestions for future shows, as you can tell, I am up for it. So just tell me what you think. Drop me a line. Let me know what you got on your mind, people. And on that note, that's all the time I have for today. So thank you for joining us here on Renegade Talk Radio. And don't forget to catch the next episode next time. See you next time, my heathens. See you next time. Sugarcoat shit. <laughs> this is Renegade Talk Radio. Renegade Talk Radio.